Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Riders Jam podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max the Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the Jam Bunker 2.0. Things have gone a little off the rails with our contractors, so it's going to be the unfinished Bunker 2.0 for a little while longer, but we're happy he now has his own bedroom, because apparently he's taken to sleeping in the guest room, because he gets the whole bed to himself. As I've said before, moving is really exhausting. Today on the program, Sharon Harrigan, whose book Half is out right now. And we had a very lovely conversation, and it's one of my favorite kinds of conversations. And I'm really looking forward to you getting to it. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Sharon is the author of the novel Half and the memoir Playing with Dynamite. She has an MFA in creative writing from Pacific University, and she teaches writing at Writer House in Charlottesville, Virginia, where she lives with her family. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Virginia Quarterly Review, Narrative, and elsewhere. She is friends with my friend Jane Friedman, who, if you don't know, has the best blog on writing on the planet. She used to be the publisher of Writer's Digest, and we're both from Cincinnati, and now she's out there. And she and Sharon are friends. So before we get to the interview, before we get to all the stuff that I want you to hear about today, we got some business, as you know. We are now coming to you every Wednesday, so tell your friends about us. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also pop over to our Facebook page and leave us a review there, or head to writersjam.com and leave us a testimonial through the contact page. While you're there, there's a couple things you can do. We have regular happy hours and little events that we put on. You can always find the information there. If you want to buy the book of anybody who's been on the program, just click on our little bookshop link, and when you do that, you'll go to a website, and you support local and independent bookstores across the country, and we get a little scratch back. We also are doing book reviews now for all the authors that are on the program. I have a stack of books here. I am behind, but we are reading daily, and we're getting things up as quickly as we can. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter. In that, you'll get book recommendations, reviews, podcast highlights, and happenings around the web. The last thing you can do on the website, other than listen to the program and all those other things, you can support the entire Solid Listen podcast network. Click on our Patreon link, and for just a couple bucks a month, you get commercial-free episodes, special happy hours, and some bonus content. Now, I told you, couple minutes ago that I get really excited about this kind of interview. And here's the interview that happened. When authors are not aware of the patterns that exist in their life, I get really excited. I don't know why, other than I love people's stories and I love talking to people. And so when the interview goes in the direction of people telling me things and then sort of slowly putting together aha moments about why they do what they do, I just find that so fascinating, and I find it lovely and refreshing, and it's one of those human connections where you just have that moment, right? Like, she and I were talking, and, like, light bulbs were coming on. 
And some of the reason that that happened in this interview, which you'll hear, is that she's very much like me, which is odd because she's not very much like me in just about any other way, as far as we could tell. But we both had this desire to do something and didn't necessarily know how to do it and didn't trust that the path in front of you, go to college, you know, get an internship, do this, was, was what was going to be right, what was going to get her where she wanted to go. And so a lot of her story is, I did this thing like college, and then while I was there, instead of really doing college, I went off and did all these other things that I wanted to do. And because of that, I am where I am today. And there was one very specific moment where she's telling this story and just sort of yada, yada, yas it, right? Just, and then I did this thing. And then she was on like three years later. And I was like, hang on, no. Like, the one thing I know about people, the one thing I know about storytelling, and writers will recognize this, and you may recognize this, it's the summary where the story is. Like, we are predisposed to skip over the things that are painful or hard or involve some depth or that are very personal because we don't want to share that. We want to share the other stuff. The subterfuge is sort of what we do in real life. But writers are observers, right? Like, if you listen to the program, like, I truly believe writers are observers. And what we do is look for those summaries and say, tell me what that summary was. Because in that, I think I'm going to find you. And that's about as writerly as I'm ever going to get on this program. And if you've ever experienced it in real life, it's really super annoying. Because I will get you in a corner and, like, I will want to know your story. Right? Like, if we're sitting around having some drinks at a bar, like, I'm going to want to get to know you through those stories. Because that, to me, is the stuff of life. And so this kind of interview where, you know, we're doing this and there is a discovery along the way is just my favorite. And it's happened, you know, it happened with Samantha Bailey, uh, who wrote Woman on the Edge. It happened with... Um, Sarah Layden, who wrote Trip Through Your Wires. You know, it's happened several times. Like, those are the two that always stick out of my head because they very specifically both said, like, this feels like therapy. I was not expecting this. How did I not know this about myself? And I just think that's wonderful. And it's a thing that we should always strive to do. But the other part of it is, is that there is this person who also didn't feel like the path, the way you're supposed to do it, was going to work for her. And so she just kind of blindly went out and did stuff, right? Like she just jumped in it and did life. And she's got these amazing stories that lead her to the place where she needed to be. And I had this discussion with my parents up until I was about, I don't even know, mid-30s, early 30s. You know, my dad used to say, like, every time I would make a decision, he's like, why would you do that? And, you know, I wanted to be a writer, and I didn't know how to do that. You know, I wasn't going to get an English, you know, I wasn't going to get an MFA or anything like that. I had no training. Like, I literally kludged my whole career together. I was writing at, you know, websites before that was really a thing, you know? Like, um, there wasn't editors. I didn't have people helping me out. I was just figuring it out as I went along. 
And so I, it resonates very much with me, this idea of like the non-traditional path. And eventually she gets, you know, she gets far enough along and she, you know, gets on a path. And many of the people that I've had on the show who have sort of done that non-traditional thing eventually sort of reach a point where they have gotten what they wanted and like, are like, now I need to do this other thing. And it's just so heartening to me, right? Like, as a kid that's from the middle of nowhere, to know that, like, you don't just have to go through the path. Like, that's not the way through. It's the way through for some folks. And if it is, God love them and do that thing. And I'm very happy it's there. I work at Carnegie Mellon. We're a path, right? Like, so I've clearly not eschewed it completely. But it'll never be the way I go through life. I don't fit in, you know in the square peg, you know, like that's just not, that's not how my life works. And so I always think it's really important to have people like that on the program so that other folks can hear like, oh, it doesn't really matter where you are. I mean, there, look, there are social constructs that forces that push against us that make it more difficult for people to succeed. Yes. And you also don't have to follow a path just because somebody says you do. That there's lots of ways to get to the end. Sometimes it's harder. Sometimes that's just what you want to do. But I love hearing the stories of people that do that, even when they did it because they didn't have any other choice. Because that's also nice to know that there are people out there like that who have that fear, but who also have that thing in them that are like, I got to keep going forward, and who just do it. And the fact that it is somebody that is so different than me is one of those wonderful things that I love about these interviews. Because it's like, yeah, there's a part of us that if you just sort of came across us, you would probably go like, they don't have a lot in common. And then there's this other thing, which is fundamental to who we are as people. That is exactly the same. And part of the reason this interview went the way that it did was because we saw each other. And what a damn gift that is. What a gift. I love interviewing people who are completely different from me because sometimes you find out that they're not. That's why I love this interview. I hope you love it too. And I really appreciate you stopping by the bunker to spend some time with Max and I. I hope your day is going well. I hope you're taking care of yourself. I hope that you are getting the vaccine as soon as you possibly can. I hope you're taking care of each other and everybody around you. And now, I want you to sit back, enjoy my conversation with Sharon Harrigan. at the at the writer's house what is the writer's right. house um so it's a nonprofit literary center uh it uh there are a lot of writers in charlottesville so and there are a lot of people who want to take classes so classes are the main thing it does um it also hosts you know readings and um one day seminars and like you know writers happy hours and some pat panels on you know topics of craft and technique um now, Charlottesville is really, I moved here in 2008 from New York City and was kind of wary. Uh, it's small, you know, it's like 50,000 people um, uh, of what kind of artistic community there would be here. But then I found Writer House and it was like, oh, well, this is my home. I'm moving in. <laughs> this place is great. <laughs> and then I, uh, you know, started teaching there. And, it, and, and it's like there are so many people interested in literature, in reading, in, in writing, and it's a 
it's a really actually great writing community. Yeah, UVA has a, a really you know well-regarded MFA program, so that's part of it. A lot of people come for that and stay. Um, yeah, Charlottesville is, is like Taos. It's one of those places that, like, if you're a writer, you kind of know, like, oh, this is a gathering place for people, but it doesn't yeah. exist outside of the zeitgeist of... It's not you know, Brooklyn. Like, all the, I thought, oh, all the writers live in Brooklyn. If I have to move from Brooklyn, I can never be a writer. <laughs> it's, I have on this program interviewed people. It's now become a joke. I'm like, I did not realize Brooklyn was one of those places. And if somebody's from New York now, I'm like, well, what part of Brooklyn do you live in? Yeah, right? exactly. Like yeah. very clearly you live somewhere in Brooklyn. Yep. Um, yeah, no, Charlottesville is, and particularly for someone like me, and maybe I knew it because I'm a little bit country. And so that's, you know, by the mountains and it's, mm -hmm. you know, Charlottesville is more of a outdoorsy kind of place. Oh, it's a fa fabulous outdoorsy place. Yeah. yeah. Just last weekend we went to the Shenandoah National Park and uh, did some big hikes there. Yeah, access to nature here is fabulous, which was not the case in Brooklyn, I have to say. Yeah, it's every time I park is nice, but. Yeah, every time I think about moving to New York, you know, I'm almost 50, and like, New York is like a place as a writer you're supposed to live. You are. But I live in Pittsburgh, I'm like, I live, there's an 800-acre park to the left of me and an 800-acre park to the right of me. Like, I got a, I got a Britney doll, yeah. like a, you know, like, wh what am I gonna do in New York? Like, yeah. like Central Park's not really a park. <laughs> like, no, it's not. <laughs> so you're in Charlottesville. Where are you originally from? Uh, so I grew up in Detroit, in Michigan. I went to New York to go to school, to go to college, and stayed until I moved here in 2008 because yeah. my husband got a job teaching at UVA. So from Detroit, uh, like in the city or suburbs? Uh, so I was on I was on a suburb um, on the. Uh, southwest called Lincoln Park, but it was on, it was very close to the border of Detroit. Um, and I spent a lot of my childhood uh, at the Detroit Institute of Arts. That was kind of my home away from home. I started taking the bus there uh, before I could drive uh, when I was 14 and taking uh, poetry classes there. That was like my lifeline. That's how I kind of learned um, what I wanted to do with my life. And then my brother started, uh, he took the poetry classes with me, but then also he got really um, obsessed with uh, art and now is an art history professor. At University so is he older or younger? He's a year and a half older. So you guys were, you were, we did, you we were did. close. We did everything together, yeah. So um, the book that I, that I just got published um, half is about twins identical twins and their super close relationships so close that they speak in one voice and everybody the first question everybody asked me is are you a twin and I say no but <laughs> but I, I was really channeling the closeness that my brother and I had he, he you know we did everything together um and uh it, it, yeah writing about like a sister and brother who are a year and a half apart was a little bit too complex so I just like <laughs> simplified it by making them twins <laughs> same age same sex but the, the idea was something I really wanted to channel that magical you know bond of that siblings can have yeah and what did your parents do uh so my dad died when I was seven um he was a welder and uh, he died in a mysterious uh strange accident that um and then he also lost his right arm playing with dynamite. Um, so, my, so I wrote a memoir about that. That was my first book called Playing with Dynamite in which I investigate exactly how he died and how he lost his arm. Um, and then my mom was, uh, she was like 29, left with three small kids and she went back to work as a secretary at a bank. And uh, so neither of them were particularly uh, 
you know, read a lot or, or you know, were kind of, we were, my brother and I was first to go to college. But for some reason, which I actually can't think is anything but magic, my mom took us when we were small kids to the Detroit Institute of Arts. Like most of my peers, I don't like, I don't think they went there that often or ever maybe, but she took us there. And um, I asked her, you know, recently, um, actually my brother had her come in and like speak to his class <laughs> through Zoom. Like, how did you get so interested in art? And she said, well, when I was in high school, I read a biography of Rembrandt. And then I found out that the Detroit Institute of Arts had some Rembrandt paintings. And, but her taking us to the muse art museum as kids literally transformed my life and transformed my brother's life. So I just want to say like, I don't know, those small things that you can, sometimes you can, I don't know, exposure to art, no matter how small or fleeting or it seems insignificant, it can really like be a, a big force for change. So anyway, uh, yeah, so my, so my mom is, yeah, so my mom is now, well, she's now retired, but yeah, she worked as a secretary until, you know, kind of secretaries became obsolete and they, people could all type up their own stuff. Um, and she became kind of a, uh, a casualty of automation. Um, so anyway, that's... Yeah. So, but it was, it's interesting that she, like, have you, like, I know that your brother sort of asked her about that, but did you ever investigate more? Like, what was it that, uh, or was it really just one of those fleeting things? Like, I got to do something with the kids, Rembrandt, that's over there. Like, let's go do that. No, I think it was very unusual that she did that. Yeah. You know, it was like, took a lot of gumption on her part. Um, and she didn't like to drive, but, you know, so she took us on the bus, which like nobody did that with little kids. <laughs> and, uh, and I can remember my little sister kind of complaining. It's like, no, I don't want to walk. My feet are tired, but she did it anyway. So no, there was some, some kind of magical force going on that conspired, uh, to have her take us there. And then, and then and you I and your brother like got like, were you like, well, we're going to go back all the time now. Like, yeah, yeah, we would go back. So we found out that you know, and who would think that an art museum would have writing classes, would have poetry classes? Yeah. But they did, and like, we didn't know anything about poetry, but we <laughs> took them, and they were for adults, and we were like kids and fourteen and fifteen, and they said, "Well, you seem passionate, so we'll make an exception for you," and we did. And then now just, you know, like working at like the writer house is like, oh god, if people like that show up, you, like the adults are like, yeah. absolutely come in, right? Yeah, like, yeah, this yeah. Never now, happens. Yeah, now, now I knew. Now I know. Yeah, and uh, and anyway, they they had a like monthly series where they'd bring in all these writers from New York City. That's how I knew, like, oh, I gotta go to New York City. That's where all the writers are, and so I got to meet these people who, for me, were like celebrities, and. Um, and the, then the art museum was also like the place to go see indie movies. Yeah. It was, and oh, and then there was this uh, center for creative studies right next door, which is the place where the, all the visual artists were. And I get to meet. It's like that was the place. That was a gathering place where like all the cool people were, and I got to meet them just like through taking these classes. Um, so I definitely can think that. I mean, I'm hope. I hope that if, yeah, a place like Writer House is this magnet that like people say oh where is there to go in Charlottesville and they come there and it's like okay this is it this is where people you know recognize what your passion is and they'll also like introduce you to this person this person in this organization and 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 that's you know that's what the DIA did for me so so is that like 
you know, people in high school will oftentimes do like theater or sports or whatever. Like, did you do stuff in high school or like, was your high school really that art institute? Like, yeah. that's where you went to go spend your time. Yeah, I spent every Saturday taking classes there. And I, um, yeah, and then I like met people there who was like a woman who was a, you know, a, a a modern dance teacher and she said, oh, come take my class. It's right nearby. So then I, you know, I would meet people who'd say, here's the cool thing to do. Um, and I, uh, so that was kind of like my, that was the center and I branched off from there. Um, yeah. And in high school I did, you know, I ran the track team for a year. I did s s stuff like that, but I was really kind of like already like starting to send po poems out to magazines. I, I kind of like, uh, I bloomed early and then I like kind of like went into hibernation and then <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to bloom again now. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's always, it, it's fascinating to me and it's why I do the interviews focusing on that early, the beginning, because that like where it starts for people is always so different and the way in which they find their way into art and writing it, it, it was that a thing that was inside of you? Like, did you read a lot? Were you writing a lot as a kid or like, or did you really like find that at 14 and go, holy shit, like this yeah, is what yeah. I've been looking for? You know, that's a good question because like, so my brother doesn't write poetry anymore. He doesn't write anymore. He, he um, is a visual artist and an art historian. And so when we talk about that time, he says, it's just like, it's what it was available. If there was a class in like origami, like I would, you know, that's what I would have like become passionate about. And that would have been my entree to art. Um, so he feels like it was just like, the, you know, it was just what was there. For me, I don't know. I think it, maybe that's true too. Maybe if it had been some other like pottery or whatever, that was what I would have become passionate about. Um, but I, I don't know. I had a sense taking those classes that there was like, this, I had this intuition, like that, like the poems that we would read, the stuff that I was being exposed to was like, oh, this stuff is amazing. And I have been waiting to read this stuff. So for me, it, it was all, not just about the writing, but like the reading, you're exposing me to all this stuff that I love and yeah. feel this connection to that's opening everything up. And that, you know, that uh, I've been looking for. So maybe with my brother, it's more like the paintings for him. was like, yes, this is the stuff I love. But for me, it's like, oh, no, it's these, it's, it's these, these books. Yeah, like as you started doing stuff, did you feel like that was helping you express yourself, understand things that had been going on? Like, how did you come into the writing? Like, what was the experience when you started doing it? As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., 
Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, yeah. To me, I felt like it was my way of making sense of the world and my way of really expressing all these things that I was maybe too shy to express verbally that I, yeah, I had this ability to do it, to, to read, to, uh, you know, uh, excavate things that I couldn't do otherwise. It seemed kind of magical, actually. I didn't, I wasn't sure exactly how I was doing it, but I seemed to like just know how to do it. It's one of the it's one of the premises of the show is that I think people become writers because they are trying to figure stuff out. Yeah, and as I said, yeah, we had you know my father died when I was seven, and there was a lot of mystery about what happened, and so there's a there's kind of a lot of things that I didn't understand, and kind of just a child, just a small child trying to figure out what death means and magical thinking, and so I had a lot of stuff it's like stuck in there that I didn't express verbally. And somehow I was able to express it through writing. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's hard to express those things verbally because I think part of the joy of writing, and writers always say this, writing is editing. Writing isn't the thing you do first. Writing is the thing you do after. <laughs> right, you just gotta get, Yeah, and so it is the process. I think that's the processing part, right? It's like, well, I don't know what any of these feelings mean, so here they are, and now I have to go through and, and really, I mean, excavate, excavate um, them and right and like and figure out like what is the thing that I actually feel and what is the thing that I actually want to say yeah and turn it into art you know by by using musical cadences and by using you know um distilling things and by making something that actually doesn't exist in the real world it can only exist in art uh which I thought found very excited exciting like yeah it's not just like taking a picture of something. It's like creating something that didn't exist before. Yeah, and then and you control it too, right? Like you, because it's your words, and be, like you can control the sort of flow of the emotion and, and the sort of understanding of the story in a way that you can't in real life, right? Like real yeah. life just happens. It doesn't give a shit whether you understand it or not, right? Like it right. just keeps yeah. rolling through. And 
it, it is like being able to take that snapshot and go, well, what, what is the story that is meaningful for me in that moment that I was writing about? Whether it's, whether you're writing goofy, you know, science fiction or whether you're writing a memoir, like it's the, you go through that same process, I think. Yeah. 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 And at that time, so it was, uh, I met all these other, all these people. I met somebody who became my first boyfriend when I was 16 and he was the like lead guitarist in a punk rock band. And then I was <laughs> first like met his friends in the other bands and went to all these shows. And so I found like, so I was really, and, and a lot of them were also like painters. So it, it really felt like I was in this maelstrom of all these artistic people who were creative and brilliant and I just like wanted to be around them and catch what they had so that felt very exciting yeah it's you know there are I think every writer goes through that like time and place when some people get it in the MFA some people get it in in the sort of you know music art scene but there comes a light a point in every writer's life where it's like oh my god I had like three years where it was just intense art like that was life yeah and then so, you think it's going to continue on like that, but then you like got to get a job and then you like have children. Right. Right. And that's, yeah, that's at like 48. Like I was lamenting the other day. I'm like, God damn, I used to be cool. Like, yeah. there, oh, you, you got like, the cool hat. So I got, yeah, I got a cool hat, but like there's just, <laughs> there was like a moment in life when the only thing that mattered was writing. And I mm -hmm. wrote every day all the time. And like, I took my notebooks with me everywhere and I would sit in rock shows and I'd be writing in the back because that was, and now I'm like, ah, shit, it's eight. I'm tired. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> like, like, I want to read a book, but I'm afraid I'm going to read one page and fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, like, you have all that experience and wisdom that layers on. Is that the, what we're going with? Is that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all so, that accumulated knowledge makes up for the wanting to go to sleep at eight. Yeah, not only one thing, but actually falling asleep on the couch and waking up the next day going, oh, I guess that was the end of the night. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in school you're in high school you're doing all this art stuff clearly you like as you get ready to go to college this is the thing you're going to go do right right so where do you go what do you study so so uh as i said we you know i hadn't really been encouraged to go to college because uh, um we didn't have a lot of money um but i got a scholarship to go to barnard which is the part of Columbia University. Um, and so I got to take classes with Kenneth Koch, who taught at Columbia, he taught poetry classes. And he was one of my heroes. So I was really excited about that. Um, and then there's this poetry scene in New York City through St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, which I got connected with. And they did um, poetry readings every Wednesday. And so I would go to those and I would take classes with like Alice Notley and Bernadette Mayer. And then through them, I got connected with the Naropa Institute. They did these summer programs with Alan, uh, led by Allen Ginsberg and Anne um, Waldman. So I got, I got the Ted Berrigan scholarship to go like the summer after my uh, sophomore year to do that. So I got connected with all those people. And then oh, I had a radio show, WKCR, the Columbia um, radio station, where I, every week, like, there were so many people in New York that, like, I just wrote them letters and said, would you come on my show? Uh, I had a half-hour show every Sunday night. And, like, they did. I was kind of amazed. Um, so I got to meet all these people, Same like Paul Oster, here. and it's like, oh, you want to be on my show? Um, but it's funny, because at the time, you know, like, it just seemed like, well, this is, I don't know. I had a sort of arrogance that I don't have anymore about like, yeah, of course people want to 
you know, do stuff with me. I'm cool. Um, so, so I did all that and I, um, yeah, I published a few poems in some journals and I, um, had like a little chapbook of, of poetry and, but then, um, yeah, and then I graduated and I got a job as a, working as an editor. And hang on. So, like, I asked you about college, and literally, you did the same thing that you did about high school, which is you didn't talk about college at all, right? Like, <laughs> so your experience, <clears throat> your experience with this stuff really was outside of the university. No, that's I did. I took class poetry classes with Kenneth Koch, and you know, the radio show was part of the university. There was a there was a um, but those aren't classes, so I ask you, like, what classes, you, I ask you what yeah. you studied, and you're like, oh, I was doing all of these other things. Yeah, right? like, I, I, did, I did actually go to class once in a while. But, yeah, you, I, I, but the experience of college for you was not about being in the classroom. It was about f- finding that art institute thing that you had. Yeah, it's kind of true, and it's, uh, it's funny. I had a, one of my best friends freshman year ended up transferring uh, to Oberlin, uh, you know, kind of in the middle of nowhere in Ohio because she didn't want to be in the middle of the city and, the, like, everybody was being like me and just going off and taking the advantage of being in the city and she wanted to just be in a place where everybody stayed on campus and, like, cooked their meals together. And I went to visit her in Oberlin and, like, that's what they did. They just, like, all cooked meals together and hung out together and never left campus. And she loved it. Um, so I think that, like, I was craving, like, the city experience but it's not for everybody. And that it would have been actually interesting and in some ways better to have a campus in the middle of nowhere where where we all hung out together. We would have become more, I would have become like probably closer to a lot of my classmates instead of like reaching out and becoming involved with all these other people outside of school. Um, So it's funny because my daughter is going to go to college next year. She's a senior and like trying to figure out like, trying to advise her and like what would yeah do you want to be in the city or not in the city and i don't know i don't know what the answer is well there's not an answer that's the thing like every every person has to find their way i've had lots of it's funny like oberlin is one of those colleges that has produced a lot of people that have ended up on this show so mm-hmm. I've heard all about the Oberlin experience many Yeah, times. I, I, I have many friends who went to Oberlin. Yeah. They loved it. Like, I, that's one of those colleges that, like, weirdly produces writers just because of the way it's structured and what they do. Um, and actually, I interviewed one person who was thrown out of Oberlin, <laughs> <laughs> who then went on to, the, like, the Oberlin life didn't fit with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it makes sense, like, that. I mean, if you go to school in New York City, particularly to be a writer, it makes sense that like sitting on campus is not the thing you're going to do. Like mm-hmm. that, that, that's why you would go to New York city to study writing. Yeah. To, to go experience everything that's happening in the city with writers. Yeah. Which I mean, to me, it was just like, so such a fabulous place to be. I applied to two colleges and they were both in New York city. It was like, to me, it was, you know, I didn't want to be anywhere else. And Frankly, I didn't want to leave when we had to leave, but I actually love being here in Charlottesville. It's like, I think people, I'm not the only one. When you live in New York City, it's hard to imagine living anywhere else. I don't know. Maybe it's like, stock, my, my son says it's like Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> now that he's away. Uh, but maybe, maybe so. But there's some like magical appeal. Well, there's, I mean, there is a, a mythology about it. Yeah. Right, like there's a mythology. I mean, one, the city's great, right? If you like being around lots of people, there's stuff going on all the time. But there's also the mythology of New York City and writing. Yeah, it's like if you're not there, you're away from the action. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's what we were saying before. Like, I, uh, 
in my head. I know that that's bullshit. I know that, writing you happens know, it all is over bullshit. the place. It is. <laughs> it, bullshit. It, it, I mean, not that New York isn't great, but that it is sort of the only place that that can happen. Right. That's the bullshit thing. But even yeah. even knowing that, right, even knowing that at 48, I'm like, I feel like I should move there for a few years. And yeah. then, like, th then I can say I'm a writer. Like, I haven't lived in, I lived in San Francisco. Like, I've lived in Austin. I've done all the things, but, like, I didn't do yeah. that thing. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you have to, like, have in the back of your book, divides his time between Brooklyn right. yeah. and... yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's uh, like I go to the Strand. I go to the, like in the before times when I was allowed to travel, like I would always go to New York. And the first place I go is the Strand. And then I go to the White Horse Tavern where Dylan Thomas drank himself to death. So, like, I do some of the Mecca things when I go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know I know the places to go. So you finish college and is your degree in English or do you like what's. Yeah. The, what's so your... my, I majored in English and I minored in French. I spent a semester abroad in Paris, which was very, um, pretty transformational too. So what, what, what took you to France? Well, I, I, why did I do my semester abroad in France? Um, because I loved French poets, <laughs> I guess. And then you're starting to see a theme here, right? Uh, <laughs> um, also, yeah. And I had met some, uh, some people who had lived in France, actually my first uh, two poetry teachers at Detroit Institute of Arts was a husband and wife team and their wife, Chris Tisch, was French. She grew up in Paris and she was like the most beautiful, sophisticated person that I was like uh, the biggest crush I had in anyone, you know? So I wanted to like be her and I, you know, like long story short, I wasn't her when I went there <laughs> and like, I did not have the red, bright red high heels and the like lip, bright red lipstick and I could not pull it off. But, um, but I wanted to be in that place, which seemed to me just like filled with, um, beauty and sophistication. So how do you, so I asked because when I went to graduate school, um, it was two years, but there was an optional third year and students could do, they would do international reporting. They'd go to Africa or whatever. I, I was a poor kid, so I couldn't afford that. Like I did the two years and like, I, I couldn't scrape together the money to go do that. How do you afford going to Paris? How did I, you want to know how I afforded going to Paris? So I got a check for $1,700, which was like, because I was on financial aid. That's what I would, you know, normally have spent on housing and food in New York City. And that was supposed to uh, cover all my expenses, including books, like for six months. Obviously, that was not going to work. So I got there, and first I found a maid's room for $250 a month, which like uh, a, a Turkish toilet in the hallway, which is basically a hole in the ground, no shower, and no heat except for something for quarters in, or like francs like at the time. So I took that, and you know, and even that, I was like counting, doing my math, and it was not, I was not, my $1,700 is not going to last. And I couldn't legally work. So actually, a poetry connection <laughs> happened. Someone, uh, George Tisch, who was the director of the poetry program at Detroit Institute of Arts, and his wife, Chris, knew someone, uh, Joseph Simas, who's an American poet living in Paris, and said, why don't you contact him, and he'll... Yeah, just contact. Like they gave me a bunch of people to contact. And he said, he did a couple of things. One is he was teaching kindergarten. And he said, would you like to be an intern and teach, uh, do an internship 
with the kindergarten year and like probably you can get some babysitting gigs that way. I did. That's like under the table money. And then he said, I am friends with a woman, uh, Anne Marie Albiac, is a pretty well known in her circle, uh, poet, French poet. And she needs someone to be her live-in companion. And she would give you room and board. And if you do all the grocery, all the shopping, you'll get a stipend. And I was like, okay, now I can afford to live in Paris. And that's what I did. Uh, the catch was I had to be home by like six o'clock. And I, so I had no nightlife. <laughs> and I, you know, missed out on a lot of socialize, a lot of socializing with my peers. Um, but she hosted these dinner parties and I got to be there and I got to meet these like famous, you know, French writers and some like American expatriates. This does seem like a theme in my story. It's like, she really had nothing to do with her peers and like, didn't really like, she doesn't want to talk about school, but then she met these people who introduced her to these cool people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yes, this is why I do the show the way I do it. I'm like, we would have just blown right past Paris. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, no. Like, as a poor kid, I'm like, listen, you already told you me know. you didn't have yeah, a lot you, of money. Yeah, and, 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 and the truth is, like, I just went there not knowing how I was going to manage, you know? Um, and I just, like, probably would not have managed if I hadn't somehow been introduced to somebody, even just me to somebody. Yeah, I mean, and that's... You know, when I think back about my life, I always tell folks, like, when I was in college, I would just get in my car. I would collect the names of alt-weekly editors because I didn't know how to be a writer. And I would just drive across the country, and I would call them ahead of time and say, hey, I'm going to be in your town. Can we have lunch? As, like, a 19-year-old kid. Yeah, well, 19 is, like, that's your... You, you don't have fear and you don't have humility and it, uh, that's like the best if I could just recapture that feeling right but see I don't think it, it to me you you're said, naive it, too. yeah I, it's not humility it wasn't any of those things like I didn't know what I knew I wanted to do this thing and I didn't have the money and connections to have that available to me so I did the only thing I knew how to do right you know it was like well the alternative is to not do this and that's right. not really an alternative you so you got to figure out a way yeah yeah and yeah. I, so I knew this was going to be an interesting story because I'm like, well, yeah, I've, I've done the sleeping in my car thing before. <laughs> like, like if, because nobody, like going to Paris is not a cheap endeavor when you are a poor college student. No, and nobody, and like, yeah, no, no, none of my other, my fellow students like were in the situation. They're all like, yeah, they, they're living in the dorm or they find themselves a studio apartment or, and, and they're all like going to restaurants. I went to zero restaurants. Right. <laughs> yeah. But you also look back on that time and, you know, I've always told particularly young writers or, or, or like working class kids that are doing stuff. I'm like, you're going to become the most interesting person in the party in like 20 years. But yeah. just know that road is going to be really hard. But like keep going on the road because you're going to tell stories like you just told and people are going to go, holy shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And, like, that's what being a writer is, I think. Like, that, like, living those experiences and being surrounded by that stuff gives you a lens into which you know what you want to say. Yeah. And, and I also really, like, found out who I was. And, I mean, it's maybe a cliche, but I had to leave my country to find out how American I was. I really kind of thought that I was going to, like, find myself in Paris and I found, uh, so Anne-Marie Allibach uh, read some of my poems. Her English wasn't great, but it was good enough to read some of, you know, uh, to do some, some reading anyway. And she said, uh, your work, it's so um, American. And I said, what, what does that mean? 
And she said, it has so many things in it, so many objects. It's so concrete. And I thought, yeah, like, you know, William Carlos Williams, no ideas, but in things. And I hadn't really internalized that that was a particularly American thing. Um, and But then reading her work, which is very abstract and very, you know, if you read a lot of French philosophy, you can see the connection. Um, and it took me a while to kind of not feel like that was a big, a criticism, like she just like dismissed me by saying, you know, you're so American, you are, you know, grounded in the physical world. <laughs> um, and and to, to, to channel that into like being something that I intentionally was doing and, and, uh, and, and, you know, frankly embrace the kind of, yeah, the physicality of Americanness and, and, and the, yeah, that being in your head all the time isn't really the goal. <laughs> the telling stories is really about things and the being in the physical world. Uh, but it took a, it took a while to make that pivot. At first, it was like a disillusionment, like I don't really belong here. <laughs> I think, like part of figuring out who you are in terms of a writer is understanding your lens. And I mean, so in that sense, it was very valuable for her to say, like, this is the lens that you have, whether you know it or not. Like, you're I didn't doing know that. it, but yeah. But then I, once I did know, I just figure out how to make this into a positive thing. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's understanding the lens is how you determine what you're going to write and, and how you write. And if you are unconscious about it, you'll never be able to get out of that. So, yeah. I mean, it's a gift to have somebody say, like, oh, this is the thing particularly at that young age, even if it, you know, stung a little bit at the time, like, what a gift. Yeah, yeah, but now I see myself going through, like, editing other people's manuscripts and, like, too abstract. I want something more concrete. I want the visceral. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you can't do that until you know. So yeah. you, you come back from, so that's your sophomore year. So yeah, I did not let you escape telling me the story of being I a did go to school. Yeah. yeah. But school is, like, you keep saying that, like, that's a thing. Like, I don't care whether you went to classes or not. I, I didn't go to a lot of my classes. Um, I sort of, you know, I was driving around the country trying to be a writer. And then, like, at the last minute was like, well, I need to get A's the last three semesters or this is not going to look good. <laughs> so, like, that was when I buckled down. So I don't privilege school as, like, a thing. School was a process, right? So you, you go to New York. You knew you wanted to get out. You knew you wanted to get out of Detroit. You knew you wanted to get to New York. You go, you're experiencing all this stuff. You do Paris, you graduate. And what happens when you graduate? Yeah, what happens <laughs> when I graduate? Um, I thought I wanted to be an English professor. My brother went on to graduate school, became an art history professor. But I didn't apply to graduate school. Instead, I got a job as an editor. Um, and then... Where at? Um, so I worked for a nonprofit press called AFB Press, and we did uh, academic journals and research journals and textbooks, disability and um, rehabilitation. So not not literary. wasn't working for. Hey, but you're getting paid Simon, to be an editor. Simon, Simon and Schuster. But um, yeah, it was. I yeah. learned. I learned how to edit. I had to really learn how to, you know. Um, take somebody's material and make it the best it can be instead of just turning it into what I thought it should be, you know, um, yeah. see it for what it is. Uh, that's a big them. leap for an editor. Like, that's when you know you're a good editor, when you can do that thing. Yes. Uh, so that was a process, and that was, that was 
educational. <laughs> um, no, I loved I loved that job. I had that job for over a dozen years, and um, but then I uh, I got I got married kind of young, right out right out of college, and I got had uh, I had a baby when I was in my early twenties. And then I got divorced and became a single mom. And so kind of life became trying to make sure that I could pay the rent, which in yeah. Brooklyn is pretty hard to do. Um, and I stopped writing for a while. Um, I had wanted to go to get my, I decided to no, know I'm not going to be an academic because I actually don't like reading academic articles. They're, they're very narrowly focused and I want to have the broader focus. So I thought I, I really would like to get my MFA, but I couldn't really with being a single mom. So I just kind of put off my dreams for a while. When, as I said, went into hibernation, um, and figured, you know, I had already always been very practical. Like one of my best friends in college is a visual artist. Um, she always like would say, "Sharon, you're so practical," and I know that she meant it as a criticism, <laughs> like you're you're not living your dream. You're just like, you know, getting the job that has security and, you know, doing the thing you need to do to take care of your kid. Um, and I saw her like, just like not having a staff job, you know, as freelancers and thinking, yeah, but you have a safety net, your family. And right. I, I don't have that luxury. I have to be practical. Right. Um, yeah, you could always tell who didn't grow up a poor kid because they say shit like that. Like, yeah, practical. That's yeah. boring. Anyway. It's like, um, I got no money in the bank. Like, practical is making sure I can stay here next month. Yeah. So I became, I became very focused on stability. And um, and then um, much later, I remarried um, to my husband, and that was a professor at EVA. And, um, and we sold our house in Brooklyn, which housing in Charlottesville is a lot cheaper, like way, way, way cheaper. So we had this nest egg. And he said, you know, maybe now you can like go get your MFA and do the thing that you always wanted to do. Oh, so like, so you stayed at the editing job until you left Brooklyn? Mm -hmm. And so that you said, what was that, 2008 when you left? Yeah, yeah. So you, um, and you're remarried by that time. I know you wrote, uh, the, you wrote the column about the, this. Oh, you read my modern love about how I, I how I met yeah. my husband. Yeah. Of course I did. Yeah. I yeah. don't do a lot of research, but I I click the links people send me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um So yeah, so you got married and that was that was when you so, quit the editing job and moved yep, to Charlottesville? And had it and had another baby. Yes. Yeah. And so you so when do you go to do the MFA? Like right so immediately? My, no, well, my MFA was two thousand ten to two thousand twelve. So, so you got settled there like a year or so later applied. Yeah. And, yeah. and when you sat down to do it, because it's, it's interesting, it, on the show, there's two kinds of people. There are the people that yeah. just like blow through it and they're like, I'm right. 23 in my MFA. And then this story gets told a lot, particularly mm -hmm. um, from uh, single parents who are like, well, I needed my child to get to like middle school or something when I, you know, when or they could get a car and suddenly I had the ability to not have to take care of them all the time where I could think about this other thing and they go get their MFA later. So as you sat down to do it, what was like, what was that process? Like, were you nervous? Were you scared? Were yeah, you yeah, and, and I have to say I was skeptical um, about how, you know, all these things. Like, can your, can writing really be taught? Right. Um, and also like, well, but I know, yeah, I've been writing since I was 14, and I, I had, you know, poems published when I was in high school, and I gave this reading when I was 18 at the youngest person in the DIA. 
Um, so I had a little bit of like a chip on my shoulder that I had to brush off. <laughs> um, and then, um, but, it, but what I realized was that I wanted to actually not write poetry anymore. I wanted to write prose. I wanted to study fiction uh, because that's what I was reading mostly. And then I had to like actually realize that knowing how to write poetry doesn't have very much at all to do with knowing how to write fiction. Yeah. Like, in fact, it's kind of a handicap in a lot of ways because you got to like, you have to realize that plot is the thing that everything else. <laughs> yeah. Concrete on. things become very important. <laughs> yeah. Well, not just concrete things, but it's, yeah, concrete structure. Yeah. You know, a whole, you have to really create this whole architecture. Yeah. Uh, not just line by line. You have to, yeah. So, uh, so I realized that there was just a lot of technique that I did, that, that I needed to study. And, I, and if I started trying to teach myself, it would be, well, okay. I did try to start to teach myself and it went very slowly. Yeah. Um, and that went, you know, the MFA, if you get people who actually tell you what to read and how to read it, it's just, you, writing can be tough. I guess. Yeah. But, yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting. Like, it can, it's, I don't think it's for everybody. Um, like, I, I was talking to Alice Randall, like, we both, she's from Detroit as well. Like, I come from an oral culture. So, and she does as well. And so we were talking about the ways in which we came to story were very much about um, the sort of lyricalness of oral traditions and storytelling. And so, trying to like obviously there's structures right like you like there's three acts and you need like plot points and inciting incidents but i didn't need an mfa to, to oh, learn uh, that because, oh yeah i, I right? don't think anybody needs an mfa and I, and um yeah and, and i don't need to say that at all i know people who've gotten mfas who felt like they were wasting time absolutely yeah. or even worse like yeah uh, so that's I think they're important for what you said, which is I need to learn that. Like, if you go in, that's why I always find it interesting to talk to people that did it later, because you went in with an idea of what you wanted, like what you needed, and so you get that back because that's how learning works, right? Like, you're like, oh, teach me how this thing works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt like I knew about, you know, I could put beautiful phrases and sentences together because I've been reading and thinking about that and melody yeah. and rhythms and the cadences. But the whole, like, how you structure um, a, a, a whole novel is something that I um, had to study in a yeah. more formal way to get it. But for a lot of people, I'm sure it's very intuitive. For me, it was not. It, you know, it, it's, it, the story process for me is intuitive, but I have found it interesting to actually have people put names on things and explain them to me, like, oh, what you've done here is this. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. And now I have an ability to talk about it. So when I'm doing something with my writing, I'm like, oh, do that thing. Yeah. Right? Like, don't just feel your way. Like, if I'm stuck, I actually have, I think the MFA, at least as I've talked to folks, gives people a tool belt of like, I have things that can help me solve problems in the writing that I'm doing. Um, yeah, but some people just know intuitively how to meander through the story, you know? Yeah, I think I think a lot of those people either read a lot or come out of oral traditions of like yeah. they, they had people telling stories and they are sort of used to, oh, at minute three, I better know who is in the story and what's happening and there better be a twist, you know, right. like like that needs to hit and it needs to be a big one and that's the inciting incident that's going to get me into act two. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, and MFAs, you know, they're a pretty recent phenomenon and they don't really exist that much outside of the U.S. So really, been learning how to, yeah, how to write. Uh, without MFAs for a long time. Yeah, I so I'm, I lived in France for two years. After college, my husband did two sabbaticals in France, and so I met some writers there. And yeah, they, they don't know what 
<laughs> when you say MFA, they're like, okay, great, yeah. Yeah, they don't so, know what a memoir is either. It doesn't exist as a category. So interesting to try to explain that. Really? Yeah. I have interviewed lots of people in Europe who write memoirs and who, like, talk about that. What do you mean that it doesn't well, exist? Well, they don't, they don't call it a memoir. Um, uh, the word memoir in French means you're, like, PhD dissertation. Um, so if you go around telling people you wrote a memoir, that's what they're so you're talking about France, not Europe. You're talking France. about France. Oh, France. no, no, yeah, not, yeah. I, I don't know about Europe. Okay. I was like, I've talked to people <laughs> over there that have, I swear to God, they, yeah, no, it makes sense because, yes, that that word means something different. And then, you know, they have this word auto, auto fiction, which is, the, you know, like like Margaret Duras, uh, the lover. It's fiction, but autobiographical. So that's kind of like how people who want to write about their lives categorize what they do. Interesting. But they just, they don't use the, they don't call the genre memoir. Yeah, that's interesting. So you, when you're in the MFA, are you working on your, your first, what are you working on? Uh, so I, I, my MFA is in fiction. I never meant to write nonfiction. It was accident. So what were you working on in the MFA? Uh, I was working on a novel that did not get published that maybe might someday a uh, coming-of-age story about a girl growing up in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> Where did that come from? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, I ask because I always tell people, and people on the show, particularly you know, writers, will, will always talk about their first book, and I'm like, no, no, your first book didn't get published. Like, what was the first thing that you wrote yeah. that was a full-length thing? Yeah. Because if that is your first book, you've rewritten it six times. Like, it's, yeah. it's still not your first book. <laughs> Oh, often it, like the first book that's published is somebody's like fourth book. Yeah, that's what yeah. I mean, right? And yeah. like it's important that people realize like this is not like it's not until you have written a few that you get into that eighteen month publishing cycle where it's like okay, this book's out. Your editor's expecting the next one in eighteen yeah. two years. You have to do ten years of work to figure out how to write a book in two years. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so you write the thing. It's fiction. Doesn't get published. You graduate with an MFA now in an unpublished book what's happening like what goes through your head at that point um yeah so that at that point um so I was, I was like querying agents for my novel and like I was getting a I, apparently I'm like really good query letters like everybody <laughs> wants help I'm not kidding like everybody comes to my help so I was getting lots of requests for the manuscript but then uh the no agent who wanted to take it but then I got one agent who was a referral from someone else and I said um and she actually came back and said well if you make all these changes blah 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 but then I wrote back and said actually I've started working on something else that you might be more interested in and it's a memoir um and that as I said happened accidentally it was like my mother started telling me these stories that I realized if I'm telling now they're never going to get told people are going to die before I can talk to them and so she said okay well sounds good send me the first 50 pages and so I write the first 50 pages and she said okay this is yeah I'm taking you on and so all of a sudden I had an agent for my memoir and like I like my novel I just like well I guess I'm not doing that right now <laughs> did you have a moment where you're like why did I get this MFA um I don't know but at, at the same time let's see uh before I started my memoir I had published the story that grew into the novel that just came out this summer half. And that story was getting a lot of critical attention. It won a couple of awards. Um, and I thought, 
I think I'm going to maybe turn that story into a novel. So you felt like like you were like, okay, the, the, the middle so, really was an accident. And it was, it like, was an accident. It was like, I, this this story is getting a lot of attention. So I so at least I'm getting, even though my novel didn't get an agent, I'm getting the the, I, the feedback that I know how to write fiction. Yeah. That people are saying, like, this story is really, and, like, you should turn it into a novel. Yeah. So I knew I wanted to do those, like, but I was interrupted by the memoir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad interruption to have. Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you're, if you're going to be interrupted, it's better that than the 12 years of hibernation. Right, true. <laughs> yeah. True. No, it was, it was all writing, and the writing was all happening. Yeah. It's interesting. You seem very down on your writing. Really? <laughs> Yeah, when you Can talk, we talk about, about how all writers are like that, <laughs> yeah, we did. it's just so funny. I'm like, you literally had a book and then another book like in process. And you're like, I mean, this thing was happening. I'm like, holy shit. Most writers would be like, this is great. I, now I have a bountiful, you know, like harvest where agents and people are interested in my writing and what a great start to my career. Yeah, no, it was, it was, <laughs> it was fabulous actually to have this agent who was highly respected who, you know, I knew people who worked with her and so she was great. And she said, I'm going to take you on as a client based on your first 50, like first draft 50 pages. That's pretty good. That was pretty good. And in fact, like I thought like this story must have something going for it, which is why, you know, because I really was eager to get back to my fiction, but that's why I said, okay, this, everybody's telling me this story as they want to read this story. Um, and that had started with like a, uh, an essay that I had sent out, like at a whim. I hadn't published any nonfiction before, but I sent out this essay and I sent it to a bunch of places and like hours later, the rumpus said they wanted it. And then the next day narrative says they want it. And I like, well, no, I just told the rumpus they could have it. And then I get like, it's like, whoa, okay, something's going on with this story. And this, and then, like, the essay comes out, and then all these people are responding to it, and my mom's opening up, like, oh, really? So you wanted, I didn't know you wanted to know more about this story, let me tell you, and my brother, it's like, okay, this story is taking on a life of its own. This, you know, the agent's interested, and then everybody's interested, and it's like, okay, uh, I guess I need to listen to what everybody's saying. Yeah, because I don't value my own writing, but everybody else is valuing yeah. it. So maybe I'll listen to them. Yeah, yeah. There's some themes that have developed. I don't know yeah. if you've seen these in your life, but it, just in the hour we've been together, I'm yeah. like, there's some stuff going yeah. on here. And, you know, some of it is, some of it I recognize because, you know, again, as a poor kid, like, like I, you, I recognize that stuff in other people. Like when I, when you come across it, just the way in which you have to live your life and the way in which you have to go into the world and the way you have to fight to make things happen. You have to fight to make things happen. Yes. And it's always, if I literally, I'm working on an essay right now as part of this thing that I'm working on. That's about like what happens when you reach 48. I'm, I'm mildly successful. I had a nice writing career in magazines. Like I'm not a poor kid anymore. But my f initial response to everything is still to fight because in my head, I'm like, you can never. It's all going to be taken away. Yeah. yeah. At any moment. And like, it's wildly unhealthy. It's a wildly yes. unhealthy mentality. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm in therapy working on that. But like, I see, so when I see it coming back to me, I'm like, oh, yeah, like you're still, you're still that kid. Like, you're still trying to like, you can never just enjoy the enjoyment of a thing. Yeah. It's, <laughs> right. It always, it always feels like it's, it might not be there tomorrow. Yeah. 
And you always feel like an imposter. I mean, everybody feels like an imposter, but I think when you come at it from the outside, like we have come at it from the outside, even when you're in the middle of it, you still are like, yeah, but I'm not, I can't remember the woman, like I'm not that woman with the high heels and the rep. Like there's always yes. something that you're like, I'm not that thing that I'm supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and um, yeah, class is something that I, I've always been aware of and kind of always aware of that dealing within my fiction too well in my memoir as well um and then uh yeah i come into uva and, and my first experience is like everybody's like so what do you what what you know what do you have your doctorate in yeah <laughs> it's like um i don't yeah life that's what i got yeah. my doctorate in yeah so that there was a whole imposter thing going on with that too but now yeah. i just I'm, say and now i'm just i'm practicing like I'm a writer. <laughs> right, but you even still have to, like, make yourself do that, right? Like, and when you yeah, say what's, it... Yeah, what's funny, though, is now is the classes that I teach, I teach... A, I've been teaching a year-long memoir class, like, since I got my MFA, because people want... That's what people wanted. And so, like, all my students almost are professors at UVA. They all, like, have so much more education than I have. But I don't care. They're learning stuff from me, because <laughs> I know more about writing than they do. But it took a little bit of chutzpah, you know, for me to, like, go into that classroom. It's like, oh, okay, you, like, are about to win the Nobel Prize, people <laughs> in your fields. Listen to me. Yeah. Yeah, but that's the thing, right? Like, that's the – that, to me, is the big through line from this whole thing. Like, right from the time you started telling the story, I'm like, oh. Even before I knew what you were going to say, I'm like, I recognize this. I recognize this energy of, like – yeah, you just do it. And shit that other people, like, that's why I would always tell people, like, you're going to be the most interesting person in the room because everybody else gets to go one way. And then, you know, poor kids have to fight their way into it. So that path is always different than everybody else's story in that room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and now I have, like, I don't know, I have all these connections with all my students. Um, one of my students who I have now, she is a former dean of the medical center here at UVA. She was like complete pioneer too. She's got a great story. Um, but she like knows everybody. And uh, when my book came out in this, this summer, like she liked it and, and she likes me. So she like gave copies to all her friends. And now like I, I went to the hospital to the, for something for my daughter. And like the, the neurologist like knows who I am. He's read my book. <laughs> that's pretty so, cool yeah so yeah it's like now these yeah all these people who i've taught like they're all i don't know yeah part so, of my network yeah and and not only part of your network but they actually want to be part of your network mm -hmm. like it's different than i know these people now you walk in and people are like oh yeah. they know me they know yeah, me. yeah. like yeah. that's a pretty cool moment like that's it was I, like vi it's like vip treatment yeah yeah that felt cool, actually. Yeah, and that's the journey, right? Like, that's, that's why I do the show the way I do, because it's like, man, you start in place, and how you get to wherever it is that you get to, when, when the book, whenever your books come out or whenever you've written something, like, there is this transformational change that goes on inside of you as a writer. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, like, I've entered this new special world of authordom, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll just tell you this little moment. Um, yeah, so I take my daughter to the neurologist. And um, he's asking her, like, oh, so you're in high school. What are you doing? All these questions. She's, um, she's now studying at Interlochen. They have a writing program. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up in Michigan, yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. She, got, she got the 
so won creative writing scholarship. So wow. we're really proud of her. So I bragged. I can't help it. I like told him that. And he's like, oh, so you're a writer too, just like your mom. Do you, and he's like, do you write about twins? And that's when I realized, he knows my book. And my daughter, like, without having seen a beach, says, no, only triplets. <laughs> <laughs> so, so she's a sassy writer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Uh, and so when did Half come out? Half came out this year. Yeah, this was yeah, a pandemic June. book. Yeah. So all that, like, it's a good thing you got your memoir out. So at least you got the bookstore experience with your first book. Yeah, yeah. Not, not having bookstores at Putin was really sad. Yeah. But... What I tell everybody is start planning the release party now because as soon as all of this is over, everybody's going to want to go do something. And what a great way to get everybody to have the exact party that you want to have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It'll be a blast. Yes. Well, thank you for coming on the show. This has been spectacular. And thank you for letting me pull stories out that you tried to not tell me. <laughs> it has been so fun. <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to reading the book and I'm hoping we can do this again soon. Okay, thanks so much. Well, there you have it. That was Sharon Harrigan, whose book Half is out right now. I love when conversations go like that, when people don't recognize their own story until you make them tell it to you. It's always so fascinating because writers, as you know, if you listen to this program, fascinate me because they're observers. and They're always trying to figure stuff out. And it's interesting when they don't realize the stuff that they're trying to figure out is part of their life. So hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as we loved having it. Before we get out of here, a couple of reminders. If you like what you heard, do us those two favors. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends about us. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly MacLear, who, as I have said, gave the best recommendation for a bathrobe ever, which in the pandemic probably the most important thing you can do. Don't forget, the jam is now out on Wednesday, so get yourself subscribed if you aren't already, wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Till the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hi, it's Jennifer, a founder of Go Kid Go and a mom to two kids. Join my family on the story train with Calm Conductor Birdie each night as we travel through the magic rainbow tunnel to everywhere and anywhere to find the best bedtime stories. Search for Story Train on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.